Okay. For those um, <clears throat> of you who have heard me teach, you're going to know that this is so far outside of my normal. In fact, this is the first time I've ever been asked to teach on knowing God through the giving of the law. And I promise that I'm not going to make it boring. Or well, I think it's not boring. But um, yeah, normally when I get asked to teach, I'm, I'm normally more asked to teach on personal transformation, on leadership, on relationships. Um, but there's a little bit of history to this. Because if you know Gabriel, Mr. Gabriel Stridham, you will know that he is a brilliant mind and he loves to learn and he loves to talk theology. Um, in fact, when he, get, he normally comes to stay with us in Alaska about once a year and he will sit for hours talking about the Bible until finally I'm like, I'm too tired to talk about the Bible anymore. And when I wake up in the morning, he'll be there with coffee at seven o'clock in the morning, ready to talk about the Bible some more, right? But he knows so much on every topic that I get really excited when I find a topic that he doesn't know about. Because I'm like, finally, something, right? So we just happen to be, um, so I live in Alaska, um, and we just happened to be in Kona at the same time as Gabe and some of the team um, at the end of October, beginning of November last year. And so we're down um, having breakfast in Kona, and I'm like, Gabe. So, oh, so side note, over the last year, I've actually been doing a real deep dive into Old Testament study. All right, so I'm a pastor at a church, so it's kind of important for me to know my Bible, correct? Yes. And so some of the teachers that I follow um, had been teaching Old Testament in a way that I had never heard in my life. Right. And so I was like, how have I never heard this before? Like, this is blowing my mind. This is opening my mind to God in ways that I never understood. And, um, and, and what I discovered is that I'd been studying under Jewish rabbis and learning from Jewish tradition of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of study of the Old Testament. Um, and out of that was coming a depth of knowledge that um, we didn't even know were there. Now, would it make sense that Jewish rabbis would know the Old Testament well after years and years and years of study? Right, correct. It is true. And so... One of the things that I learned, I sat down with Gabe and Kona, and I was like, Gabe, did you know that Jewish rabbis do not believe that the Ten Commandments are commandments at all? They're actually part of a 10-step marriage proposal. Right? So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. And Gabe was like, no. And I was like, finally something that Gabe does not know. And how that backfired on me is then Gabe is like, okay, so now you're going to teach the bass. Um, but here, here's what, I, before we get there, that was just a little tease of where we're going. But before we get there, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about our approach um, to knowing God and, and approach to our, our approach to knowing God in the context of the Bible. Right, Because I think um, one of the great questions that we ask ourselves if we're going to talk about knowing God is, well, how do I actually get to know somebody? Right? Like, do you get to know me by reading facts off a page? That, this is where you shake your head one way or the other. This is where, how I know you're alive, right? Do you get to know me through facts off a page? No. Are you going to get to know me through my social media? No. Like, you'll see some pictures of my family, and you'll learn some things about me, but you don't know me, right? And, and so then some brave soul is going to say, well, I get to know you through spending time with you. And I would say, maybe, right? Because I've spent a lot of time with different people, and sometimes I can walk away knowing um, their opinion on politics, you know, a little bit about maybe where they went to school and what they're doing with their lives. And, and so I know a little more about them, but I still don't necessarily know them. Right? And, and there's a depth of knowing that really comes when you walk with somebody in the context of their story. 
right? Like you are invited in to the story of my life to walk with me as I walk out my story, right? And, and as you walk with me in my story and as you learn the history of my story, what happens is that you learn to begin to understand how I think, how I react, how I feel, what moves me, what matters to me, what what drives me, right? I actually become predictable to you because you know me, right? Let me give you an example, right? So I grew up in New Zealand, and, but I live in Alaska. Um, growing up in New Zealand, the humor of our culture is deeply sarcastic, right? If you were outside our culture, um, a lot of people would think it's really mean, probably because it actually kind of is, but most New Zealanders find it funny, Right? Um, and so one of the things that I discovered when I moved to America is that Americans do not find that funny. They find it hurtful. So one of the things I had to learn was that side of me cannot show up here because people will think I am a massive jerk. But secretly, deep down, I have a very sarcastic sense of humor. Right? But that thing in me is buried so far down that you would have to get very, very close to me to discover that it's there. Right? And, and so one night last year, this year, sometime, um, I was at a friend's birthday party and there was a very small group of us and there just happened to be another New Zealand girl in the room, which has never happened before. And my friend was like, she pipes up and she goes... Okay, I have to ask you, are all New Zealanders like Carla? And this girl was like, what do you mean? And she was like, brought up like this sarcastic sense of humor and the little things that I find funny. And then we had, I was like, this friend knows me, right? Because there is very few people who would actually know that I find these things funny because of how they would judge me if they did. And we spent the rest of the night, me and this other girl, New Zealand girl laughing about how mean that we actually are and none, nobody knows, <laughs> right? But this is a depth of knowing me that you have to be so safe with me before I would let you see that. Does that make sense? So I have a lot of people who are in my life, but very few people who see that. Yes? Right? And, and, and so what I'm saying is like, as you walk with me, as you walk with me in my story, you begin to know me. And, and the reason this is really important to understand is because the Bible, first and foremost, is a story. Right? The Bible is the story that runs from beginning to end. And it's an epic story that runs from Eden to, the new, to new Jerusalem. And... and the pro and the reason I bring that up, and, and most of you have probably heard that before, but the danger often in the way that we learn the Bible or that we learn to engage the Bible is that we engage the Bible as a set of facts, as things to be learned about God rather than a story through which we know God. And in fact, one of the things that I actually get quite concerned about is that we believe if we know something about God, it's actually the same as knowing God. And it's not. Right? Can, can I just make it clear? Knowing something about God is not the same as knowing God. Right? Interestingly enough, in Jeremiah 22, it says this. It says, He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. Is this what it means? Is this not what it means to know me? Says God. And what I want to point out from that is God actually says, you know me when you behave like me. In other words, I have come into a knowing of God, not just knowing about him, so much so that it changes me and I become like him. Right? Like that's how God measures how you know him. And so let me use an example, right? Like, like we come to the Bible and we read it, and would we say that God is kind? Thank you. You scared me a little bit. I'm like, I'm going to have to back up, right? So we know this about God, 
right? We know that God is kind. But when you approach God, when you come to him in the place of prayer, are you anticipating that God's heart is kind towards you? Right? Do you know a survey was done really recently on Christians, and they were asked, when you come to God in the place of prayer, how do you think God feels about you? Right? The majority of them answered, disappointed. Right? So what's the difference between reading the Bible and saying God is kind, and yet when I approach him in the place of prayer, I anticipate disappointment? Right? And so it's like this place of understanding that the kindness of God is not a fact about him. It's an experience of him. Like if God is kind, he is always kind. And it doesn't mean saying that somebody is kind isn't saying that they behave kindly sometimes. It means that his disposition towards you at all times is kindness. Right? And... And so once I know through experience God's kindness, what begins to happen is that I become kind because I become like what I behold, right? And here's what gets interesting about this because I'm going to tell on myself. It is last year as, as I was studying a little bit of this and I was on a personal journey of going, man, love is not a generic concept. Love is a very measurable concept, right? And we're told to pursue love, so I should be able to have measurable love points in my life. So I asked my children, right, because love is kind. God is kind. Love is kind, so I should be kind. So I asked my children. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son, and I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how kind do you think I am? And they started laughing. I'm not even lying. They laughed, first of all. And then they said four. Thankfully, I got a better score when I asked them how patient I was. So I wasn't like completely tanking. But then what happened is my husband was there and he asked them on a scale of one to 10 how kind they thought he was. And they said seven. And then I got angry and tried to convince them that I was more kind than their dad. Until he was like, babe, you asked for feedback, you should probably receive it. Right? And, and it led to conversations with my children, because obviously I want my children to experience me as kind because I represent God in their life. But what that causes me to do is to actually examine, do I know the kindness of God? Because what's missing in the translation of who he is to me and through me, right? And so, man, truth is in the Bible 100%, right? We want to grow in truth. But when we come to the Bible as a story, we actually discover that it's more than learning truth, that it's we actually discover God, more than learning facts about him, because story is heart language, right? Story captures your heart, and it captures your mind, and it captures your imagination. And that's what's supposed to happen when you read the Bible, right? Because if a story will capture my heart, it will affect my mind. But usually if things capture my mind, they don't always affect my heart, right? Do you, when you study worldview, you actually realize that minds are changed through storytelling, right? It's why the current worldview is being projected through movies, right? It's not given to you as reason or debate on a page. It's sold to you through story. Because if it's sold to you through story, it gets your heart, it gets your imagination, and it changes your mind, right? This has been happening in worldview progression throughout the years. And, and so when we read the Bible as story, then God comes alive in story, right? Then we start discovering that God feels and God weeps and God gets angry and God pursues and God is passionate. And, and God suddenly becomes a, 
life and real. And, and here's one thing that I, I, I want to add that's really actually quite important when we approach the Bible is that there is a difference in the way that Easterners learn and there's a difference in the way that Westerners learn. Have you guys heard this? Right? Oh, well, I'm going to repeat it again. Right? So Westerners learn through the exchange of facts. They learn through reason. They learn through memorization. And, and here, let me give you a bunch of information and you write it down. It's actually not a super effective way of learning. But that's the way we do it. Right? Easterners learn through discovery. Right? So the facts aren't given to you. You're supposed to discover them through an experiential learning process. That's why Jesus talked in parables. And the, the reason that this is important is that the Bible is written by what? Easterners or Westerners? Easterners, which means discovery is buried in story that you were supposed to wrestle with to learn. Right? Let me give an example. One of our staff members a couple of weeks ago was reading the story of David. And so she reads the story of David and Bathsheba. And then, and then she reads the story through to where Nathan the prophet comes to David, gives him the whole analogy about the lamb and stealing the neighbor's lamb. And then says, because you have done this, your wives will be get, get carried away, get taken away from you. And she's like mad right? Like she comes out of reading that story and she's like, look, I am not okay because David committed adultery and then committed murder and he's fine, but his wives are getting carried away? Excuse me. And I'm like, this is great. Like this is how you engage story, right? You are actually supposed to wrestle because something in that isn't quite right, right? So you don't just read it and be like, oh, apparently God's all right with that. No, you actually are supposed to wrestle because there's things hidden in story that you have to get to through asking questions, right? And most of us have been taught that you can't ask questions because then you have unbelief. Actually, you're supposed to ask questions, right? Like you open the Bible and within three chapters, there's a snake that walks and talks, like if that doesn't make you ask a question, you've got to wonder like, where has my mind gone numb? right? Okay, so there's the background of like when you approach the Old Testament, the way that it was written was supposed to force you to have to wrestle because in the wrestle you have to ask questions and in the questions is the discovery of God. Now, wrestle well. Don't wrestle into stupid conclusions. That should go without saying, right? But it's there. Okay, so we, we need, I'm, I'm getting to the giving of the law, right? Uh, but, but whenever we approach individual chunks of the Bible, the way we should be doing it is going big story, smaller story, unto my story, right? So any story that you read is always in the context of a bigger story. Like you're not going to understand it properly if you haven't placed it in the context of bigger story. Right? So you go big story into smaller story, and then you're supposed to go, how does this affect my story? So let's go quickly, bigger story. Right? So bigger story, God creates. God has a very, very good intention at creation. Mankind falls. Right? And then Genesis, let me give you this. Genesis 1 to 11 is your prelude to the entire story. Right? Genesis 1 through 11, it ends at Babel. That sets you up for the next whole section of the story because what happens is you discover through that section of the story that sin starts with an individual, spreads to a family, spreads to a civilization, and affects the earth itself. Right? Yes? That's a problem. Right? When you're wrestling with the story, you're going, oh, no, that's bad. Right? So then... What happens, Noah, flood, we start again. We have a recreation story. But you know what happens? The exact same thing. And by Babel, you have it again that evil has spread to an entire civilization. But God has promised that he will not wipe out the earth again. 
right? So by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, you are actually supposed to be wrestling with a level of hopelessness because sin is so pervasive that you have no idea what God is going to do to redeem the story. Okay? So when you're turning the page after Babel, your heart is actually like going, oh my gosh, God had a good intention. It got so destroyed. It went so far. And now we're repeating the cycle. I don't have a lot of hope. The only hope is that God comes up with a new story. Right? And then, hello, here's Abraham. Right? And Abraham is introduced in a way that you're going, oh, God is doing something different. Right? God is choosing one man as a partner, and through Abraham, God is going to build a family that is going to redeem his purposes on the earth. Right? And you follow that story, and it starts well. And then it like, and then you quickly realize that dysfunction is growing in Abraham's family. Right? So you're a little bit, you have moments of hope and moments of excitement. And then you have moments of concern. Like it seems like the story is going backwards all the way up until the people of God end in Egypt in slavery. Right? So now we're going, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? Because God's plan to redeem the earth isn't looking so good. Where is God? Yeah? Right? And so then in this crazy story in Exodus, God delivers his people. He shows up after 400 years to a people who actually no longer know him. And he delivers them in this crazy story. And now he pulls them out into the wilderness. So now God's people are in the wilderness meeting with the God that they do not know. Okay, big story. Okay, now we're going to go small story. And this is where it gets so helpful that to learn Jewish weddings, historically, in this time frame, followed a five-step process. Okay, so it wasn't a quick thing. There was a very traditional way that you got married. And the first step in the process is, is there's basically, there is a moment, and the language is almost always the same, that the prospective husband says, I will take you as my own. Right? That is the first indication that something is happening here. Right? Let's put it this way. It would be like if you were on the YWAM base and you went for a few coffee dates, right? And then the, the guy that you were having these coffee dates with said, I intend to pursue you as my girlfriend. Step one, I will take you as my own. Okay, so let's say now you've moved on from a few coffee dates and now you're having a little bit of dinners and you were dating. Step two in the process is when they say, you will be to me as a treasured possession. That is almost language that is used exclusively in the marriage process, right? Now, you will find... In Exodus 6, God saying to his people, I will take you as my own. Then you will find in Exodus 19, God saying, you will be to me a treasured possession. Right? Now, you have got people at the time who are recognizing this is marriage talk. Okay? Now, step three is go and wash yourself in preparation. You'll find that in Exodus as well. Step four is what's called a ketubah. A ketubah is a marriage contract. And a marriage contract is when the groom and his father get together and they write down the basis of what you can expect in this marriage. 
It is the foundations of what is important that I am offering you that will form the basis of this marriage agreement, right? And so the groom and his father, they come and meet with the bride and her father, and he presents a ketubah, right? Now, this is considered the marriage proposal. If she agrees, now we are crossing over and we are getting married. Most ketubahs were around... 10 points, right? So, and here's, here's what might blow your mind a little bit more, is the ketubah is the contract, which is the basis of your marriage. Once you agree and get married, if either of you violate the marriage contract and don't repent, it is considered marital unfaithfulness. right? So, uh, marital unfaithfulness in that culture was not just about adultery. It was about you broke the foundational agreements of our covenant, right? I, I actually, part of me is like, can we bring that back, right? Could we actually like just form some kind of thing of like, you know, I commit to working and providing for this family. I commit to, the, I commit to, um, an agreement around finances, and I won't sneaky spend money behind your back. Right? Just certain things would probably be helpful that it's like, this is the covenant basis of our marriage, and, and if I break this, you can hold me to account for unfaithfulness. Right? And, and so here's the thing. It, Israel is coming out of Egypt. What they have known at this point are the gods of Egypt, right? What are the gods of Egypt like? They're cruel. They're selfish. They give no care for human life. They demand sacrifice in order for favor, right? But even then, they're unpredictable, and there's so many of them that you have to balance favor of one God against another, right? Like if, if you give too much, get too much favor from one God, then another God is going to get mad at you. So you live constantly afraid, right? So can you imagine you get delivered into the wilderness by this God who made a massive display of power, showed that he was above and beyond the power of anything else that you've ever seen. He's now the one true God. And your question is, what is he like and what does he expect from me? And God says, here's my proposal. Here's my proposal. And I, I learned this one from a guy called Shane Willard. I'm not going to take it as my own. But God basically says, number one, how about you have no other God but me, right? If I'm going to be your husband, I want to be the only one. Okay. And then he says, how about you don't have any other idols? That would be the equivalent of saying, can you not text your ex anymore? Right? How about you throw away your ex-boyfriend's stuff? Okay. And then he says, the most demanding thing ever. I want you to have a day of rest. Right? Now, now we've got to think about this. They've been slaves in Egypt. Right? Been, did they get rest in Egypt? No rest in Egypt. Right? So God is presenting to them a proposal that says, I want you to rest and spend time with me one day a week. And they're going, oh, no, your commandments are too heavy, God. No. They're saying this is amazing because my parents and their parents and their parents before them have never experienced rest. Right? And so then God says, um, also, you cannot murder each other. Well, where have they just come from? Egypt. In Egypt, they are powerless and Pharaoh has been killing their babies. Right, so God is telling them, in my economy, the strong cannot kill the weak. 
right? In fact, he goes on to say, you also can't steal. You also can't have somebody else's wife, right? Like, like all of God's, the rest of God's commandments, like you can't murder, you can't commit adultery, you can't steal, you can't lie, and you can't covet, are all protective in nature, right? Because they have just come out of an environment where they have no rights and they are an oppressed people and there is nothing they can do about it. Right? If, if you get presented with that as the basis of a relational contract with your God, how heavy does it seem? No, it's delightful. It is delightful. Do you know how quick you are signing your name on that contract? Right? This is not like anything we've ever seen in people's relationship to God on the earth. And, and, and so what they do is they, so God says, will you be mine? You will be to me as a treasured possession. Here's the basis of my proposal. There's two things that I'm asking. The rest is to protect you. And you will notice they still got, this is why they don't call it commandments. They have the opportunity to agree or disagree. And they agree And what happens next is basically the next couple of stages of finishing out the five stages of marriage. God at Mount Sinai marries his people. And and what I love about the exchange that you see is that God is saying to you, I will be your husband. To me, you will be my treasured possession. And to the earth, you will be a kingdom of priests. Right? And, and, and I want you to understand that the assignment that they were given was in the context of the highest level of covenant partnership. Right? So first of all, we are entering into a covenant partnership. God is their husband, pro- promises to be their provider and their protector and to treasure them. And from that place, they are positioned to be a partner with God to be priests on the earth. Why? What is God's intention? Right? God's intent, this is why you have to know the story. This is why you have to know the big story, because God's intention all along is to reconcile the earth into himself. Right? So God marries a people group in order to provide them the blessing of relationship from which they can be unconcerned about their own needs and they can be about his assignment on the earth. Does the law seem so boring now? See, because what happens is there is a lot of detail in these chapters. And so what tends to happen is we go blah, 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 blah. And we think that we know. In fact, what we actually probably do is have a weird understanding of what the law even was and just some kind of thing of like, this is God's worst moment in history, right? This is the moment that I can't reconcile because you tell me that God was kind, but this doesn't seem very kind. Right? And, and, but, but what God is doing is he's like, okay, so I'm giving you the context for our partnership, and then I'm giving you an assignment. In the context of our partnership, go and be priests. That's what you have to read Leviticus with, if you ever actually get through Leviticus. Let's be honest, most of us skip, pass. Right? But what God is doing in Leviticus is just telling them how to do that job right? They've been given an assignment because we're about the job of restoring the earth or reconciling the earth to God. And, and so here, let me summarize Leviticus for you in four points. He says this, so you will be different than the other nations. This is what it will look like. Here's how you're going to be different. Then he says, you're going to intercede on behalf of others. You will have a concern for people outside of yourself. And then he says, You will teach man how to be right with God. Here's how you restore man to God. And then he says, you will look after those in need. 
That's the summary of Leviticus. Which when you read it that way, you realize, oh, the promise to Abraham that says the nations of the earth will be blessed through you is right on track, right? And so then he sets all of that up and then he goes into Deuteronomy. And can I just tell you in one sentence the theme of Deuteronomy? Remember, please don't forget. Right? On the other side of all of this, God is basically saying, I need you to remember what it was like when you were the slaves. I need you to remember what it was like when you were the oppressed ones. And I, remem- I need you to remember what I was like to you when you needed me. And I need you to remember that I was the one that delivered you and I need you to remember the agreement that you made with me. Because if you hold to your end of the agreement, things are going to go really, 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 really well. An agreement you already said yes to, by the way. But if you forget, and if you step out of partnership, and if you become selfish, and if you go your own way, that's not going to end well. Let me just warn you now. That's Deuteronomy. Right? So, they've been set up as partners with God in the highest level of covenant relationship available. They've been promised blessing, they've been promised protection and provision, and they've just been asked to fulfill their agreement. How well does that go? Yeah, it doesn't go so well. Right? Like, this is how the story continues. And what happens is over and over, they abandon their partnership, and they turn back towards selfishness. Right? Like their purpose on the earth adjusts away from I am here as a priest on the earth to reconcile man to God to back to that thing of like I am here for me. I am here and I am going to grow in my wealth and, my, and all that thing. And, and man, if you read the rest of the story through that window, you're going to see the rest of the Old Testament story as God calling his people back to the agreement, right? He's saying, hey, we agreed. Can I remind you? I'm going to remind you what's going to happen. And But every time, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to add a thought here that's not, not in my notes. Here's what's really interesting. You will find in the Hebrew that there is a word for oppression that is used that it the word that is used is that every time this certain word that's used, the cry of oppression reaches the ears of God, he always responds, right? Because God's ear is always turned towards the oppressed. So you will see in the Hebrew, there's this word for oppression that God hears, and a part of the job of being the priest of God on the earth is that you care for those who are needy and oppressed, right? He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. Is this not what it means to know me? Right? And when you look at the story, that when Israel turns so far to the point where they become the oppressors and the cry of oppression is now coming up because of God's people, they have moved so far from the agreement that they have become the opposite of the agreement, that that is when God opposes them. And you'll notice the cry of God's prophets is to return to the agreement. You'll notice that he calls idolatry, adultery. Now that you understand, right, why God calls idolatry, adultery. Now you understand, perhaps, the message of Hosea. You are the unfaithful wife, my people.
Okay, why does this matter? I'm going to read you a quote from, this, from a book called The Epic of Eden. She says, I have found that most Christians, if allowed to answer honestly, might be tempted to dub this section of the Bible the unfortunate preface to the part of the Bible that really matters. But the reality is, is that the Old Testament is the bulk of redemptive history, and the church's lack of knowledge of their own heritage renders much of the New Testament inaccessible to them. Right? Because a lot of people actually don't read the Old Testament all that much, unless you're in YWAM and then you have to. Right? And hopefully that comes alive to you. But a lot of people have already believed that the God of the Old Testament is angry and punishing and demanding and impossible to believe to please. And so when you believe that, you're going to read the Old Testament through that lens, right? And and then you kind of believe that God doesn't really get nice and accessible until Jesus, which isn't biblical, right? And and, and because when I read it that way, I completely misunderstand the God of the story, and then I fail to find myself in the story, Right? Because what I'm actually supposed to find in the story is me. Right? I find myself in the story when God shows up and you have this incredible God encounter and you feel like your life has changed only tomorrow to run to Egypt, even though God said don't. Right? You read the story and you go, I'm like that. Right? Right? You read the story of the people of Israel out in the wilderness and they start grumbling and complaining. Right? God leads them out of Egypt with the most miraculous way ever, parts the Red Sea in front of them. They walk through into the desert. They have literally seen like one of the best miracles of all time. Right? And then what happens? They start complaining in the wilderness. And we read it and we think, you're idiots. Right? Like, if I saw the Red Sea parted, I wouldn't complain. And you know what they complained about? They remembered the pomegranates and the food back in Egypt. And they were mad that the bread that was falling from the sky wasn't as good as the food in Egypt. Right? Do you know what you're supposed to see? You. Have I experienced the miraculous provision of God? Have I complained in seasons where I don't understand? Right? The test of the wilderness, sustained but not satisfied. Right? What happens when you're sustained but not satisfied? See, because you're supposed to read it in the story, go, oh my gosh, I identify with you, and then go, what is God like in the face of that? And discover the kindness of God and the boundary lines, to be fair. Because when you read the story through this context, what you're going to discover is that God was faithful the entire time. He kept his part of the covenant. God was faithful. The people were faithless. And when we see what caused people to be faithless, what caused people to turn away we see all the same temptations in ourselves. Like every time, what caused them to turn, what caused them to pull away, are all the same temptations we struggle with to this day, right? And we see the heart of God that appeals to them and says, hey, come back. Hey, can I just remind you that that's not gonna work out well for you? Hey, can I tell you that this path leads to destruction? You know, and we're like, God's so mean, he punished them. I'm like, after how many warnings? 
right? Because when I begin to see myself in David and in Moses and in people complaining in the wilderness, what happens is I identify with the same deep cry for a savior. I identify with the level of, of um, struggle that says, I agreed to this and it sounded beautiful on paper, but I find myself unable to manage myself well towards this thing. God, I need help. And, and you find this beautiful promise in Jeremiah 31, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Right? That's the covenant we just talked about. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. Right? In the middle of the faithlessness of the people, the faithfulness of God is pointing to what he is going to do to redeem it, right? Because his intention has not changed. He is still looking to reconcile the earth to himself, right? And, and, and so this is where we go, oh, interesting, because the New Testament still uses bride and priest language, correct? Okay, I'm going to give you one more thing that might blow your mind a little bit, right? So when we get married, what is the celebration that we do every year to mark the day that we got married? Right, we have an anniversary, right? In the Old Testament, there was a festival every year that was the anniversary of when God married his people in the desert. It was called Shavuot, which in the New Testament is called, anybody want to guess? Pentecost. And here's the thing. When God married his people in the desert, the moment that they say the actual marriage ceremony occurred, they had thunder and fire. But the word thunder in Hebrew can also be translated many voices or many tongues. Right? So God's marriage ceremony in the desert had fire and thunder, which sounded like many tongues. What happened at Pentecost? Right? The Jewish people are understanding what is happening at the time. Right? So in Exodus, God marries his people. At Pentecost, the church is born, who is the bride of Christ, right? In Exodus, God comes and dwells in the tabernacle. At Pentecost, God comes and takes up residence in his new temple. In Exodus, Moses comes down the mountain with a message from God and finds people in sin with the golden calf. How many people died that day? 3,000. How many people got saved on the day of Pentecost? Right? There, this is a new Exodus story that is absolute redemption. Right? Instead of death, there is life. Okay. Big story. That was the small story, actually. That was actually back to the big story. I went big story, small story, big story again. Right, so how we have to go now is my story. Right, how does this actually affect me? This has to turn into my knowing God. Right? 
So, here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. Just want silent to silence your heart for a minute. And I just want you to hear God asking you the question, will you be my treasured possession? And then I want you to ask him, God, what does that mean to you for me to be your treasured possession? And then I want you to hear the invitation that says, will you be my priest on the earth? And then I want you to ask him, what is it that you are asking of me? One final question is, God, can you give me a picture of what it would look like to live fully as your partner and as your priest?